You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you so much for joining us. This week, our North American editor, Matt McDermott, is on the exchange to share with us his conversation with the musician, Relaxer. It's really more about like communing with the sound, I think, and hearing the sound and seeing how the sound feels as like a listener than it is about saying, oh, I've got this um, emotion and I need, I'm gonna have a formula to like make you feel that emotion. It's like, I wanna feel it like with the audience by hearing the sound. And that the sound itself is like, that's what's like speaking. Of course I make the sound, but you know, there it only, only kind of in a way. <laughs> Relaxer, formerly known as ITAL, returned to Planet Mew to release his new album, Concealer, this year. To learn more about the record, Matt caught him over Zoom. And as you're about to hear, they talked about growing up around DIY culture, the tensions that can come with being part of a band, and Relaxer's experience working on the early iterations of New York's renowned Sustain Release Festival. I really hope that you have a wonderful listen to Relaxer on RA's Exchange. Hello and welcome to the Resident Advisor Exchange. My name is Matthew McDermott and I am the North American editor of Resident Advisor. I am honored to be sitting down with Relaxer today. Uh, Relaxer has a new album out on Planet Moo called Concealer, but his history within electronic and experimental music also mirrors several important subculture trends within U.S. music over the last two decades. Um, Relaxer's real name is Daniel Martin McCormick. He's joining me via Zoom from New York City right now. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. It's good to see you again. Um, you know, I, last time we spoke, we were in person grabbing coffee, but we'll try to we'll try to recreate that that you know convivial, casual atmosphere electronically now. Totally. We've had a lot of practice on Zoom. <laughs> um, I was thinking back while preparing for this interview, and I think the first time I saw you perform was as part of a trio called Mia Me. Um, I saw you in a DIY space in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and at that time, Mia Me was a trio featuring Damon Palermo on drums and... Um, and Jacob Long, now known as Earth and Sea, on bass. And you guys, I guess I would describe it as a kind of aggro, dub-punk thing, uh, but very much a band. Then maybe three years later, I saw Biami again, and at that point, it was a two-piece featuring the aforementioned Mr. Palermo and yourself, over gear, uh, you know, on a table, doing something that sounded a lot more like the dance music that you're now known for. Can you describe that sort of period of transformation from your perspective? Yeah, totally. I mean, so that band was really important to me. Um, you know, I had been, I'd grown up in DC and I had played in this band Black Eyes that was on Discord and that was like a really exciting time but that band had formed when i was like 17 years old and it was formed out of like a pretty intense friend group and like it was amazing experience not to minimize it in any way um but then after that band split up i moved to california and i kind of didn't really anticipate how um you know, like how much support I was giving up <laughs> in DC and how like alone I felt, you know, just on the new coast. And I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm kind of rebuilding. And when I met Damon um, and we started bonding over dance music, to me that felt like the first, you know, one of the first like real like um, decisions I made as an artist in a way to join join up with this uh, partner and start this group. It, it wasn't, you know, just getting swept up 
in a crew, it was like, let's start a band kind of from zero. And we really bonded over dance music and, um, and we didn't have any idea how to make it. So when we started, I had a copy of audacity, which is like a free audio editing software. And Damon had a Yamaha sampler that at the, at that time in 2006 was already pretty outdated. And I think he still uses it quite a lot. Um, and so we started this duo with some gear and a very janky approach and then kind of piece by piece cobbled together like a way of working together. And then Jacob, who had been in Black Eyes with me, joined a year later and we kind of settled into a band groove. But like for me and I think for Damon, like dance music was always this dream, you know, and this thing that we shared. And at a certain point in 2010, Jacob left and you know, bands are amazing because you're in this like pressure cooker and you really start to play off each other and gel and develop a formed vocabulary. And we thought, well, we don't really want to like replace Jacob. He's like a pretty singular musician and a pretty like singular presence in any group. Um, people who have played with him, I think will all attest to like the quiet intensity and focus and, um, just like he just shows up and kind of lays it down without any fuss. And we didn't want to find a bass player and like to have them fill his shoes. And we thought we've always had this dream. So let's just dive in. And like at that point in 2010, I had just um, recorded would be too generous. I, I had made produced, I guess, assembled in audacity, the first ITAL. 12 inch um that was my old alias before relaxer and i was sitting in my kitchen trying to figure out i was like all right let's make some real tracks i had been working in audacity making some loops and then building them into tracks and that became um this 12 inch on 100 silk uh itals theme and so it's just kind of in step with that we were like let's just dive in and you know it was I mean, it was like a, it was a heady time. <laughs> it was very like sink or swim. Um, I think in those, you know, we made an EP called Dolphins um, that was for Thrill Jockey and mostly made using some loops and logic and that sampler and my voice and some keyboards and stuff, 707. And, you know, going from a live band to that, it felt like a seismic shift. Um, Although in many ways I listen back to that and it's still like a very like band dynamic. Like we weren't exactly like producing those songs in the way that you would now. It still was really like jamming and working with hardware and stuff. But I feel like it was, you know, we were inspired. Some of the other people around at the time, like Blondes and, um, you know, other friends um, seeing like Light Asylum too live coming through from um, New York. There was just a sense of like a big shift that felt, you know, it was time. I feel like it had been building up for a while uh, for us, like on a personal level and like in a larger like cultural moment. And I feel like you saw it over the next few years that a lot of the focus on bands and band dynamics just fell by the wayside as people became more and more comfortable and like willing to pick up electronics and like, that felt, yeah, like that felt like a personal moment that was in step with like a cultural moment for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's something that I witnessed and I relate to as well. Um, and I'm acquainted with a lot of the people we speak about, but just to, you know, set the scene for 2010, 2011, um, you know, Bookworms, Nick Dawson produces one of his biggest tracks, African Rhythms, which is a remix of a Miami tune, which comes out on Lies, which is bubbling up in New York. And then um, in your native DC, you have uh, Beautiful Swimmers doing, and specifically like Andrew Max D, getting a label called Future Times off the ground. Um, and then, yeah, in LA, you have uh brit 
and Amanda Brown from, you know, the fairly prolific or very prolific experimental label, Not Not Fun, uh, launching a dance imprint, 100% Silk, which then pretty much like becomes one of the major stories in dance music. And, you know, dance music has always been DIY from Detroit and Chicago to stuff like Bunker Records. But this is like specifically like harnessing some of the DIY energy from punk and experimental music. And like, does that inform your decision? Like when you're like, okay, I'm just going to make some tracks. Like, of course it's lo-fi. Like everything I do is lo-fi. Like, um, I, and it's like right before the YouTube production tutorials day, Right. as well like so it's just like uh yeah i'm gonna do this the same way i do everything i'm gonna just like start throwing stuff at the wall well i i thought i was hi-fi you know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um i think you're right like a lot of this scene you know was coming directly out of you know you use the term diy and i feel like that is the appropriate name because i felt you know at the late 90s Indie was part of punk. Punk was like a parent genre and like all music that I encountered, whether it was a hardcore band or the Boredoms or Cat Power or Fugazi, it kind of all felt in 1999 like it was basically punk. And I feel like at the turn of the millennium, Black Dice, Lightning Bolt, Animal Collective, Wolf Eyes, a lot of these like noise groups totally like brought essentially a new umbrella which was like noise and then there was this sort of sprawl like as indie became more uh basically pop music then like i felt that noise became the new bass ingredient and it became this huge scene of diy where it's sort of like you can come out of you can you can just come out of like plugging in pedals to a mixer or whatever and that might lead you to make songs that might lead you to make pop that might lead you to make dub or you might be a noise person. Noise was almost like the stone in Stone Soup or whatever, and it just felt like it was all like DIY music. And like the the atmosphere of that, the sense of play and possibility and like that there was a lot of projects and a lot of like trying on ideas. And even like, especially in Not Not Fun, a lot of, you know, conceptual work, like people were kind of channeling um a lot of mood boards and like pairing that with this like noise approach. I feel like Sonora, James Ferraro, like a lot of these artists would come in record by record with like a clear aesthetic mood that was being very like deliberately channeled. And so when I was starting, I didn't think, oh, I'm making lo-fi dance music. I was working in a computer. You know, I was working with raw waveforms. I didn't think I was hi-fi. Like, I mean, it just, it just wasn't up nearly to like production snuff (laughs) but i didn't know how to do that but i do think you know also like the flip side is like there's probably people like 5 10 15 years my senior who are like this asshole like we've been here the whole time doing dance music and they were and a lot of those people were around in um san francisco doing you know more kind of minimal stuff throwing some raves and they were doing cool stuff but like to me I felt really like detached from that older generation. I felt like they were already like, it kind of felt like walking up at a party to like some people in the middle of a conversation and being like, what I miss? And it's like, you know, like they have been doing this. Some people have been going to Berlin. Minimal had been happening for a while. It didn't feel like something that was accessible to a young person like me in a way, like as a person who wanted to learn it felt like that conversation was like way developed. Um, and so I, you know, I was really like sort of scouring for old records, stuff like stuff on YouTube, which was like at the time kind of like just becoming like a streaming service, like a very DIY, like sort of thrift store basement version of a streaming service. And you could find all these like old weird dance music treasures on people's like private channels. And so I just felt like it was like channeling the emotion of that as I related to it, listening very like privately, as opposed to being like, 
oh, like I'm a practiced DJ and like I'm going to be making tracks for my next set at like a at a rave, you know, and like I definitely felt that the most when I went overseas in 2011 to play for the first time as ITAL and I was like, whoa, there are, I mean, people <laughs> know what they're doing and I am learning, you know, I felt like I had my, what I had, all I had was what I had, which was my like sensibility and my like energy and emotion, but I didn't have really nearly the chops and I felt immediately like I could see the difference and see, you know, um, like the work I had cut out in front of me, um, to, to develop, like <laughs> just the ability to make it sound to like translate. Cause I think like the biggest challenge forever as an artist is you like feel something that's like authentic and you can't quite put it into words, which is why you're using like music, this like nonverbal abstract form. And it's like, I'm feeling something in a response to this genre or to the sounds or to this like form or something like that. Okay. How do I like make it happen? That doesn't feel like I'm just like putting a cookie cutter template over, you know, and, and, and yeah. Yeah. So that's like kind of the long answer. Um, no, I love this. I love this free flowing style. Let's uh, let's go back to that 2011 European tour, though. Like, what are are these like some of the first like proper clubs you're you're playing in? Like, tell us about that tour and you know what you witness as like a gulf between like new American dance music that comes out of experimental DIY and noise culture and like what was going on in Europe at the time. Yeah, I mean, the first show, the reason I went on the tour was Unsound in, in Poland. Booked me as, you know, incredible, like one of the best festivals in the world. And so I'm there and I'm playing on the Friday night, um, which is like a pretty big night um, at their like main venue. Upstairs, like Model 500 was playing. I was playing downstairs with Tin Man and... Um, white denim label made as well 10 minutes that's right yeah. yeah and did damon play that night too because there was a silk showcase silk not not fun showcase um but i think it was really you know a lot of those shows i set up myself following that um following that like festival appearance and so there was a mix of like all types of venues um, but I really noticed it, um, at this Bristol show where I was playing with Livity Sound and it was like the first Livity Sound show. It was Peverlist, Asusu and Cowton, and they were doing a live set. And I remember, I think they played before me and it sounded amazing. And I played after them. And it did not sound as amazing. <laughs> like I, I was like, oh my God. Like, of course, these are like brilliant producers, you know, like, uh, but I just really was like, oh, like it's a small basement. It wasn't like a huge PA or whatever, but they knew how to mix a track. They knew how to like sculpt a track to have like bass weight and impact and feel, you know, like right. And I was like rocking up. I mean, I basically just dumped a bunch of my loops into this Electribe, which I didn't really know how to use. I remember like I was about to leave for tour and I had this drum machine and I was going to, I was going to bring it maybe. And I was like pressing play on the drum machine and play on the Electribe at the same time and being like, they sync up. And then I like looked in the back and I was like, I wonder if this like MIDI cable is, could be used to like get these <laughs> to play at the same time. I mean, like I can't, you know, the sort of, um, I mean, I, I love, when I think back on that time, it makes me smile because I'm like, I love that guy. You know what I mean? Like I like the gumption and like, just like going for it and audacity Well, yeah, so to speak. Um, just being like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, this is what I'm interested in and I'll figure it out as I go. Um, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, I've just learned a lot of stuff as I go and like, I, there's times when I think back on some of those shows and I'm like, SMDH, like, I can't believe 
I was just like redlining this mixer so hard with this electribe that I didn't know how to use, blah, 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 blah. But it's also like, I mean, it was an amazing experience. And like now, I mean, I learned from all those experiences. You know, I didn't just stay there and keep redlining the electribe and be like, I don't know how to use it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that, that really hit. And then I also remember coming home from that tour and playing this weird Todd P party in New York, but it was with a like, EDM producer and this was 2012 when EDM was exploding and um and just being like I was supposed to DJ and I was playing vinyl and the stage was super resonant and then they played off their computer and it was like so loud and crazy and you know it was at that time when EDM was really like I just it, it, you know it felt like kind of vile in a way I mean like EDM right now I feel like a lot of these sounds are experiencing a sort of artistic rebirth in the avant-garde but like at the time it just felt like monster energy drink became a producer you know <laughs> and yeah um, i remember it well i remember like seeing a dim mac stage uh in pennsylvania and like just like everybody was shirtless yeah buff neon the drops were industrial strength. That's what was going on after your set at a, at a Todd P show. Yeah, exactly. It was, no, it went on before and I had to go on after again. So it was again, like following and being like, I mean, these experiences were brutal because it was just like realizing the sort of, that I had this idea of what I was doing and that idea was valid, but the techniques were like still really in development and a lot of people were able to do things with technology that at that point I was still just like barely scratching the surface of and I was like these people can do things and have impact <laughs> and I am struggling to make the same impact although I believe in my sort of core vision it's just like the realization was always like yeah and that's like an ongoing thing with like production with everything is like how do you actually make it translate, you know? Yeah, it's 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 interesting. You bring up an interesting point because, um, you know, DIY punk culture and the beginnings of, like, techno and house are, like, virtually identical in a way. And it, it's, it's like the beginning of, like, any movement. You use a piece of equipment in an unintended manner or mm -hmm. you have this you're influenced by like progressive and synth pop and you try to make like a more banging version, like, et cetera. You, you are like sort of going into this great unknown, but one of the things about like DIY culture that I appreciate, like DIY culture is basically the idea that, uh, you can book, you can start your own band. You can book your own tour. You can start your own show space. You should just go for it. Um, the idea of expertise is overrated in every aspect. Um, what I like about DIY culture is that in an ideal setting, you're allowed to like fail on stage over yeah. and over again until, and, and people will stick with you and understand, like, they're not like coming to see this like slick stage show, like with like choreographed dance moves and like the perfect, like you know, notched EQ filter on everything. Like, like I, I enjoy that about DIY sure. culture. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I just wanted to like fast forward because you, you are being like very like sweet and self-deprecating about like these early forays into dance music. And I, I think like for the record, it, at that Todd P show was like a photographer from the new york times there also like photographing that was you. a different one yeah okay. but yeah yeah so around this time like you are you are you know the first artist from the scene to like get really like get a bunch of press on that level which is also like this huge sea change but let's fast forward like 10 years the last time i saw you you were um at nowadays and you were helping with the sound for the night on like an extremely like pristine, perfectly tuned system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, what do you say when somebody like rocks up with an eighth inch cable and is like, let's go. 
I love it. I mean, honestly, I love it because, you know, there's, it doesn't, the, there's so many X factors and there's so many like ways that sound can be enhanced or corrupted or blah, 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 blah. It's just, it's still to me, it's, it's the vibe is like the main thing is the energy you bring. And I feel like the, the hands down bottom line is if the performer is like comfortable and confident and feels good, that creates an energy that's going to radiate out into the room. The people are going to feel on a sort of, you know, body level. I mean, I don't love it when people just, I don't love it when there's like an antagonism or a willful ignorance. I don't really see what the point is. And you know, I think that that kind of hits home because I, as a younger person, I experienced that. And I remember I was talking to a, I worked at this music shop at, for this classical guitar player and I ended up studying with her. But, um, you know, I was like, I don't need to know anything. Like, I don't need to be taught anything. I was like 18 years old, you know, and I was like, I don't, I don't want music lessons. I don't want any of this stuff. Like, I'm fine as I am. And she was like, why are you afraid to like learn? You know, like, why would you, how could this possibly hurt you? And so when I see people, you know, being what I perceive to be, you know, sort of like antagonistically, like anti, I kind of like, ah, it feels not even so much. I don't like, I feel a pang. I feel a pang because I like know that feeling and I've wrestled with that feeling and I don't subscribe to it. But, um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of production work and organizing work and, there's so many people who do things wrong, but they they are relaxed and like feeling it and inspired. And it's like, that is it. I mean, if that's it, like that's the thing that that translates, that creates these experiences for people that we remember and that we like are transformed by, you know? So um, yeah, like I, I prefer to hear like beautiful sound, beautifully rendered, blah, blah, blah. Like it's the best, but I mean, an eighth inch cable is, is not going to kill your performance and it might like help it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, let's talk about this like sort of journey through sound and, and, you know, this change in approach. Um, the new record concealer is uh it's a beautiful record. You're back on planet Moo. Thank you. Uh, congratulations on the new LP. Um, and, you know, tell us about like the circumstances that led up to this record. From what I understand, like you've been sort of studying sound yeah. more than ever before. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been in an MFA program, um, Sonic Arts and studying composition and sound design and stuff like that. But also just it's been an obsession, you know, since basically those first records and then going on that first tour, it's really been something that I've chased pretty slow and sure, but like doggedly. And I feel like I'm still like, it still always feels like we're just starting now in a way, like we're just arriving like now because it still is essentially the same thing as those first ITAL records, which is like having a, um, an emotion that you want to translate into sound or like a, a feeling or something coming from within that you want to translate into sound. And there's, it's just about applying like, you know, there's just deeper and deeper grains of like attention you can do. That's like, that's been my like uh, experience, but like that, I don't, yeah, that, that, that's like the core puzzle. I mean, or like the, the, not puzzle, but like, that's the, that's, that's the journey. I mean, for me. And so, you know, I think like studying synthesis, pretty intensely sound design, compositions, Maximus P, interactive systems, like all this stuff is like super interesting and helpful. It all just like kind of goes in there. Um, but in a way it's, it's it's just like adding more tools to that like original 
mission. You relocated to New York right around the time that the ITAL project was going into full swing. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 2010, December 2010. So, you know, you've been in New York for 10 years at this point, which is like undoubtedly one of, at this point, like one of the three cities, you know, the three top cities for dance music, you know, mm-hmm. some of the best clubs, like some of the, sort of the busiest weekends are going down in that city right now. Um, but when you arrived at 2010, like, what did you find? Where was, where were you playing music? Because I, like, to me, I think that the transformation of going from DIY venues like Death by Audio and Glasslands to like what, what we have now, which is nowadays elsewhere, places like Bossa Nova, like that, that to me is like the story, the socioeconomic and creative story of a city over over a decade yeah i mean when i got here it was there's was 285 kent which was like pretty legendary venue in williamsburg on a block with three or four other venues glasslands monster island death by audio was there even maybe one more or there was a loft where some artists lived um and then there was a place cameo that was a bar in the front venue in the back and some other DIY spaces schoolhouse in Bushwick um a lot of DIY spaces you know and i i mean bunker was the established techno party um yeah. they brought it yeah they yeah, brought like in sound. i have to say like the sound at bunker around that time was like they they were pro even at that period, especially in like Definitely. the main room at public assembly. Yeah, yeah, they were bringing in sound um, from this sound engineer in Philly, and I don't know what he had, but it was legit. Um, and they were booking Sandwell District, um, Marcellus Pittman. I remember, you know, like real established artists who, at the time, I looked up to. Um, I mean, I still look up to them, but you know, at the at that time, they was like, okay, these are the uh yeah they were established then they weren't up and coming um and then there was the mutual dreaming parties and then there was a lot of the mutual dreaming parties were just starting in 2010 and that was really diy and that kind of brought a lot of a lot of the outsider house people together and then there was just like a lot of like bar nights and sort of shows where people would do their electronic sets and I feel like that over 2010, 2011, 2012, parties started happening more and more. Um, And it became clear that like this was gathering steam. And then I remember it was like, I think January 2013, Output and Bossa Nova opened up the same month or like within a few weeks of each other, or it was like right neck and neck. And those two venues, Bossa Nova Civic Club being like, a tiny, like, you know, owned by a member of the community employing, like, friends with a small sound system and a small dance floor. It's basically, it's, like, the epic, ultimate, like, party shack. And then output is this, like, huge industrial strength, function one outfitted, much more expensive, you know, like, much more, like, rich club like opening up that really like it kind of felt like this david and goliath thing and um but i feel like that reflected you know okay they this is happening again like dance music is exploding in brooklyn and pretty soon you started getting more and more like venues that were entirely dedicated to this stuff and that really like changed the dynamic you know especially too because like a lot of these american artists had started touring overseas and having you know similar experiences to mine where like okay like let's learn how to dj let's like (laughs) actually be able to do this we're not in our bedrooms anymore and um and you start to get more and more people i mean you start to get more djs i mean it, it can't be overstated that in 2011 a party in brooklyn could easily be like four live acts and one dj 
which is inconceivable now. Like four electronic live acts, three, like, you know, like the DJ was the afterthought. And that was like the leftover from the band era. And now it's like you get, you know, one live act every two months and it's everybody's DJing, you know? Um, So yeah, that was like that when the venues started opening up and it became this steady thing with good sound and focus on DJing, like people just ran with it and New York really went off, you know? It's interesting. Like, I'm just going to throw some, some more stuff in the pot. Like maybe there are two paths. Um, Output, output is now defunct and, and that area of uh, what neighborhood is that? Williamsburg. Yeah, that area of Williamsburg. A little is, known is, neighborhood. Yeah, just a little, a, a little borough in Brooklyn. Uh, that that area is now like completely insane. Um, yeah. Like in terms of like waterfront condos and yeah. expensive hotels and this sort of yeah. thing. Um, and maybe that was like a path that led directly to Brooklyn Mirage, and then. Mm-hmm. Totally. The bossa, the bossa path, like maybe led directly to nowadays. Like in terms of like, you have this like which way, Western man kind of uh, decision tree right then. And another thing I wanted to say, like you know, uh, former RA New York based staff writer Max Pearl wrote this like amazing piece on gentrification and New York clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and former Discord affiliate like Ian Savonius has like you know uh, attributed the rise in like solo electronic music to like real estate on some level. Um, mm. Does that like resonate with you in New York? Like you simply like can't find a place to practice with your band. I disagree with that. I, on a personal level, I don't think it has to do with real estate. Um, or I'm sure you could you could equate that, but I didn't have the experience of, oh gosh, I I have got all my band members here, but where on earth could we practice? I think it's just that we hit a point where it's like the software was available enough, developed enough. Um, every laptop you bought from Mac, starting in I don't know, you know, two thousand five or something, probably came with GarageBand. You know, I think that people weren't so scared to these sounds became a lot more approachable over those 10 years between 2000 and 2010. Like a lot, a lot more approachable. I mean, you can buy Logic for $200 and it works. It's like not that hard to start. And you're hearing, you know, you're hearing these pop songs and you think that sounds good. And you can just go and make it, you know, it's, it's so, yeah, I mean, there is a, you know, like there is a sort of snowball effect where you're like, well, you know, if I see my friend is using like a modular and some MFB drum machines and they're like doing it on their desk in their room and making cool sounds, maybe I'll do that, you know? And if you're always hanging out around band people and you like go and chill at their practice space, you might like pick up a bass guitar. But like, you know, so there is that osmosis thing, which can't be overstated, but like, yeah, I I do feel like even in indie music, you've just, which is, you know, band-based, you see a lot more of um, people taking the kind of Tame Impala model, right? Which is like, or, you know, the, the solo songwriter, producer, mastermind who hires musicians. I know a number of people who are active in indie rock who are good friends of mine, and they're getting hired for gigs more than they're playing in a band that's like, you know, a band is like a sort of insane enterprise in some ways. You have this, you basically marry four people, <laughs> three people or something, have this, you know, monastic, symbiotic relationship that can be really fraught you know (laughs) and you do all this work in and put your ideas into this unit that 
devours those ideas alive and spits back out something else that's nothing like what you intended, you know, and you may end up liking it anyways, but I always found being in a band, and I remember Thurston Moore talked about this, and I've heard other, like, major, Ian McKay talk about this, like, you bring your idea to the band, and it and it comes out the other side, and you feel a connection to it, but it's not what you wanted. And if you have Ableton, and you know a few things, you can kind of make what you want. And that's pretty yeah. appealing. Um, yeah. So I understand. Yeah, I'm sure the real estate is a part of it, but I think that also it just might be people like opting not to not to do this arduous sort of um herzogian <laughs> struggle <laughs> no understood there is like this like path of less resistance that is apparent like when you can rock up to uh you know a club with two usbs as opposed to trying to drag a a uh, Ampeg fridge kind of, uh, you know, base cabinet up some stairs. And, yeah. and that's like, just like quite obvious, but we, we've sort of been speaking on the life of the mind and the life of like the bedroom producer, but, you know, one of these sort of catalyzing uh, institutions for the New York scene is, 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 a festival that you have a lot to do with uh, as as like a co-founder and from what I understand, former creative director, which is sustained I release. Will, yes, I will correct you there. I did not co-found it, um, but I was okay. involved from year one and then I became co-director. Um, I was like working on the team very intensely for a few years and then became co-director in 2017. But I've been there since the since the start um and i resigned this april so i did not have any involvement in the last one but um yeah yeah do you have a question about this yeah i guess like the question is like you know this is this this is now like one of the premier festivals in the u.s like you know if you are in bushwick and going out to clubs or ridgewood and going out to clubs from i don't know june on like people the the constant question is like are you going to sustain like how are you getting there it's essentially like a private festival that is modeled in some ways after european festivals like free rotation but it has in fact like possibly like you know usurped festivals like that and reputation and importance especially in the u.s um you founded this or sorry you did not found this festival you helped uh your frequent collaborator aurora halal as as like part of the core team within this festival and you know this is another instance where you can like kind of like watch the story of you know east coast dance music change in front of you year after year yeah uh would you agree with that and like how have you seen like this this sort of festival in upstate new york cultivate a new generation well, you know, I think for me, the thing about Sustain that was, there's a lot that was really special about working on that project. I mean, it was the, at the start, it was, the idea was just to throw a party in the woods. And um, that alone seemed like this sort of impossible dream. And so even just accomplishing that in the first year was really like, energizing um but what became really quickly like a sort of major part of it was that we wanted the production and the um curation to be really on point and to be really you know cutting edge so it was like we wanted to bring the best artists from brooklyn the most exciting um we wanted to bring artists who were going to have strong performances and a strong artistic voice um it didn't necessarily matter if they were the most famous they had to have a strong artistic voice and be able to deliver that you know in a way that was exciting and compelling and then to give them everything that they would need to you know really execute with impunity um so it was like great sound you know really trying to make sure that 
stage setup is like working. There's plenty of room that they have every, you know, just make it good. And I think a lot of that, um, you know, one thing that we talked about a lot was like that the underground could be better than the mainstream, that there was this feeling that a lot of people would sort of semi-articulate that like, oh, it's all well and good to play the warehouse rave and it's kind of fun and janky, but it's got a vibe. But then you really make it and suddenly you're playing these like larger kind of like mini mega clubs, you know, and that's the real deal. And the AC is blasting and they serve Red Bull and Jaeger bombs and, you know, it costs like $19 to get a beer, but like now you've made it or something. And it was just like, yeah, fuck that. We don't yeah. want that. Like, I don't want that. That's not where I want to be. That doesn't inspire me. I don't want to spend my time in those places. I don't like the market demands that are the audience, you know, often is encouraged to, you know, want a very like digestible, uninteresting product. I was like, what? Who actually wants this? Not me, you know? And I was raised in Washington, D.C., and I was raised under the umbrella of Discord Records and. I was taught by example that you could define your own culture, you know, that it is not something you just consume that we make it for ourselves. And so sustain was like, let's actually make what we want. And that festival was what we wanted, which is our favorite artists, exciting artists playing to a decent sized crowd, but not like a, cattle call level crowd you know and like through an excellent pa with excellent setup everything they need excellent lights i mean the lights from nightmind and kip davis cannot be overstated as a huge part of like the visual presentation and you know curated in a way where it's like everybody is set up for success and like i think that that is fairly simple in a way and that the only thing that is special about it is that it's actually a reflection of the organizers, like whether it's me or now it's just Aurora, it's actually a reflection of the organizer's desire rather than trying to make a product. It's being like, we want to hear this artist. Let's book them. You know, we want to hear this sequence of artists in this row we think this is going to be amazing and like being driven even when some of the sets whatever didn't work as well or like you know i was always surprised like i felt like almost every performance i ever saw at sustain was excellent and i think it's because the artists and the art were like put were prioritized it's like that's the point that's the point you know it's not about um i don't know (laughs) I mean, it wasn't, you know, people would ask us, why don't you sell more tickets or why don't you double in size? I was like, I don't want to. That would be a lot more people. We'd have to, like, triple our security staff. We'd have to have all this more info. No, we like it here. This is good. Like, this is what we want, you know? So that that was that was a really powerful, I think, for me, the fruition of that sort of DIY ethos that I was raised in was a really powerful experience um, to participate in. You know, see it not just as this cool thing that happened in the 80s and 90s, but something that you can do like right now, too. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really inspiring. And Sustain Release has been responsible for moments like, for instance, like I think I was like playing Naomi Daniels stars and somebody was like, oh, Goucher played that at Sustain like 2017 or 2018. (laughs) Big moment like or like PLO man playing like literally every record that he brought with him including like billy idol's eyes without a face something like this is these are like yeah people step up and it is a showcase of the local scene but you know first three years i was there for only year two i should have been at other sustains i don't know why i wasn't but huge (laughs) shout out to aurora daniel and the whole crew but like at some point like market forces kind of inevitably impinge on a festival like this as well like where you like yeah like year two everybody's like playing bossa year nine everybody's like kind of playing deck mantel and knockdown center you know like so Mm -hmm. like 
do you do you see like obviously like this year had to be a mostly local festival like that kind of like gets back to like showcasing the scene but like do you feel those economic forces sort of like come back in or maybe like you know the mini super club that you speak of like starts to book a lineup that looks more like sustain at some point and then you're like whoa like what is this is not as diy as it used to be like do you do you observe that in any way i mean in my personal life it's all diy so no i mean like i'm not (laughs) i mean i can't really comment on what sustain is doing anymore but like with climate of fear which is label and party series i like co-run mostly out of Berlin. I mean, we do everything ourselves. And I think that, you know, yeah, I mean, people's successful artists are going to have career tracks and individual artists will, you know, their fees will go up or, and they might become more, you know, focused on mass appeal or not. I mean, that's really a case by case kind of thing. Um, And I don't really begrudge any artists for making the decisions that feel right for them in the moment. Um, you know, in this sort of hypothetical. Um, but, you know, as far as being like, oh, like th- that, you know, cultural, I mean, corporate like ghouls are leeching off of the underground and stuff like that. It's like, well, yes, of course, like that is always the case. And I think if you're involved in curation or running a label or whatever it's like again you just have to actually have to like want things and if you're guided by like that that core intuition for something you want to make happen you'll find a way in this world to you know actualize it but it's like you know there's there's always new exciting artists and there's always a bunch of people i mean whatever i don't know i just feel like you just have to have to i don't know there's no formula right like i mean you're like yeah the money is gonna come in and i change it or something but in another sense i mean if you can find a way to maintain a rhythm and be sustainable um i don't know you just keep rolling with it I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I actually don't really have much of it. Actually, as I'm answering this, I don't really have much of an answer because it's like, there's not, um, I don't think there's like a formula that works. It's just like moment by moment being like, well, what do, what do we want to do? I mean, some of the people I admire the most in music are those people who have a strong independent ethos, but are able to also just take each scenario as it comes i mean i feel like i look at some of the like trilogy tapes and like i don't really know what goes on behind the scenes there or whatever but it's like a lot of interesting records coming out a very strong aesthetic vision i mean they're doing collaborations with like palace and stuff like that there seems to be a lot of fingers in a lot of pots you know just kind of like keeping the energy moving and that it doesn't ever feel like it's like fixed it's never like fixed in this sort of like stern, tight, you know, austere underground like prison, but it also doesn't feel like it's sold out or that it's like lost its essence. It feels like its essence is is always there and always growing and changing. And I've, there's a lot of people who have made their way over decades because it's like, you know, that kind of like hard line it's got to be one way all the time. You know, it's got to be like uncompromisingly DIY in this one very strict sense. I mean, that's not how reality works, but you can bring a spirit of like integrity and creativity to anything you do. Absolutely. And I mean, this like plays into another question, like 10 years in, like, you know, in 2011, like, you and your cohort which included at the time people like octa octa who have like gone on to become like massive house music stars who are still representative of of this approach that has tons of integrity like um 
but you know, there's now like, like this crew that we're speaking about, whether it's like sustain or, you know, Octa Octa and Eris or, uh, you know, the crew that was the original like Bossa Nova residents or something like that, or the people hanging around there. Now that's like the establishment and there's this new generation coming in um, who might not have to grapple with like these same like kind of ideas about like DIY and selling out and like, you know, and I imagine like your interaction with this new generation, like you're interacting with these people all the time. And, and what's your sort of like approach as this new generation of like New York artists come up? I mean, you know, I mean, I welcome all new artists. It's funny to be like, Oh, now you're the establishment. I was like, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I mean, I don't feel, I don't know what that actually means in a sense, because the life of an artist, you know, is like fairly chaotic, you know? And I feel like a lot of the, um, people, you know, you mention aren't, you know, there's nobody is like sitting comfortably on some like co in the cozy chair, you know, just being like, <laughs> yeah, we made it. Uh, the gigs roll in and life is a breeze. You know, it's like everybody is still making their way. And, you know, a lot of the people you're talking about are in the mid thirties or something. So it's just like still young and still pushing fairly underground fairly volatile fairly unpredictable you know music careers um that can often feel like like the you know they're very like season by season but you know as far as a younger generation of artists i mean first of all you just have to like be interested in what another generation of artists is doing because they're coming either way i mean it's like <laughs> Um, but I think like, you know, I'm pretty excited for the current, you know, new crop of like New York artists. There's like a pretty incredible explosion of like, um, queer and trans DJs and ex experimental musicians and pretty like adventurous and like genre mashing trans pop gabber, you know, people like playing a lot of like, <sighs> fairly like over the top music but with like a lot of energy and like personal style um that i appreciate you know the stuff that i'm like less excited for is the more um militantly uh hard and bleak techno um which feels like it's kind of going by the wayside after the pandemic thankfully but um this sort of maximum overdrive, maximum overload, like punishing techno. I personally just never felt in sync with it. I mean, I like a good like ripper, but like as a sort of way of life, it felt emotionally fairly um, uh, desolate, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm always looking for like the sort of, those pockets of like um emotion might not be the right word but expression you know ex that sort of mercurial expression so yeah i think it's i think a lot of the artists who are coming up are really like bringing freshness and um and a sense of what's the word i'm looking for like a real like real like energy like people have like strong visions for what they want right now um i feel like a lot of the artists who are coming up i feel like it seemed pretty empowered like not so much like um oh i'm worried that you know i'm not doing it right or something i mean i do think that cdjs and again like the availability of daws gives people a lot of access i mean it is not as technically hard to learn how to dj now and a lot of people are doing it like very fast and whether they're bringing the finesse of you know a seasoned selector or whatever they are bringing a lot of energy and pulling it off pretty well um so yeah i think it's cool yeah yeah and you know i guess one of my final questions here we've we've sort of touched on most of the stuff i wanted to speak about but you know week in and week out like you just released this like really beautiful record, um, which I'm enjoying a lot. And 
you know, but week in and week out, you take a, you, you study, you, you know, do different sonic exercises and you also like, you know, occasionally work in clubs and work in sound and production. Mm -hmm. Um, like it's, it's, it is almost this like kind of like working classics, like dance music, uh, graft that you have going on right now. And what have you observed? Like you were, you, you're in nowadays, most weekends you're at sustain is how is New York recovering from, you know, an extremely difficult period where nothing could be taken for granted. I mean, it's just like an explosion of creativity and like people are pretty excited to engage again. I'm finding that like music right now is really fun. Um, you know, I kind of wasn't sure what to expect if it was going to be really, everybody's going to be going crazy if no one would remember how to DJ or whatever. But, um, you know, there's a sense of, of really unbridled, um, unbridled fun. And then I think for me as like an artist, you know, with like the record and just like my art practice in general, I mean, coming out of a pandemic and I just, I find like that, that I really want to, on the one hand, you know, on a technical and like sonic level like push it as far as possible to make the sounds like as rich as possible in a way that's like as honest and like emotionally um like vulnerable as possible because i'm like in a sense it's just there's like nothing to prove you know like i it, i i feel like coming back and hearing sounds through a sound system and you're like, this is it. Like, this is it. Like all, all we have is like, I mean, this is a very like trite sentence, but it's like, all we have is this moment or something. But like, there's this feeling of like, well, let's just put it all out on the floor, you know, like, and that doesn't necessarily mean like the most, um, like wild drum programming or like the fastest tempo or whatever it could um it i but i just find yeah i really want to like you know with this record i was like i really wanted to feel like i was like touching these sounds and i've and that's something that like i still feel like there's a lot more to explore that especially in performance like making the sounds as like tactile and like real feeling it's just not just as a technical exercise but so you can really immerse yourself in a sound like that feels like it has this, an amount of like uh urgency to me um not just to like make a track and like layer some stuff and be like oh that's a banger but like to be like let's bask in this <laughs> like in this incredible spectrum of like uh amplified frequencies through these like systems that's just you know we don't always have the opportunity to. Yeah, and I think it gets back to this more uh, nuanced of nuanced expression of like this, like kind of like raw emotion or this like raw yeah. expression that has driven you know all of your projects. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's weird to talk about it because I'm like I don't even know what those emotions are. Like I feel like it'd be in I would be wrong to label them and be like oh this is the happy or the sad or you know whatever it's so oblique like to me like i it, it feels like every time it's 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 uncovering something that's very true and very hard to <laughs> um put into words it's really more about like communing with the sound i think and hearing the sound and seeing how the sound feels as like a listener than it is about saying oh i've got this um emotion and i need i'm gonna have a formula to like make you feel that emotion it's like i want to feel it like with the audience by hearing the sound and that the sound itself is like that's what's like speaking um of course i make the sound but you know there it only only kind of in a way <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Relaxer and Matt McDermott. Our full archive is available for you to take in. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to our end-of-year critics roundtable, which is available on all platforms right now. I will have a new episode for you next week. Until then, take care.